0: people invented existential angst. So they all out of other problems because the thing about those problems was typically more money would solve them. Ah, hello. I'm back. Like Joey's World Tour. Uh, I'm a little sweaty right now so the hair's looking uh, positively uh Gordon geckoian in right now uh, trying to get the thing here all right I didn't want to talk about this but now I feel like since it's the very first thing I got in the chat I have to the goddamn thing in dc you can point out the fact the obvious fact that such a trivial encounter should not be something that anybody knows about and that only the reality of, of our fast twitch muscle social media diet would even make it possible for something that insignificant to become something you would know let alone know about let alone something that you would form very strong opinions around re- related to your larger like political goals and ideologies. That's kind of absurd. And of course, other stuff's happening. Fucking Kenosha's on fire. There's a guy who was walking from Milwaukee to uh, D.C. got shot by some psycho. But it's all over there. And the thing about it that makes me want to talk about it is the same thing is related to what I said yesterday about ops. Someone says, was it libs or an op? And I thought, that's great. That's a perfect, this is as insignificant an episode of it as it is, we can use it to try to suss out some broader questions. And I talked yesterday about how the compulsion to turn everything into an op eventually leaves the point where you can no longer distinguish the mechanisms of propaganda and you know, state control and uh, intelligence from just the mechanisms of capitalism creating a, a, a cultural uh, superstructure out of material relationships. But there's another big part that I actually forgot to mention that direct ties directly to this. And that is that another big driver, another, uh, another big problem with uh, the, the instinctive desire, the instinctive belief to see something like that and think, op. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, there was a video today of some people who attacked some brunchers. Or I didn't attack them, but they, a bunch of mostly white uh, Black Lives Matter protesters just getting in the faces of uh, people who are not giving them the power fist in response, and just screaming at this woman for not doing the fist. And a lot of people are going, ooh, ah, that's is that really helpful? And a lot of people are saying, like we heard from the first person, is this enough? And I understand that desire, because who wants to take credit for that, even like as just at the abstract level of I agree broadly with the sentiment that they're trying to to protest on behalf of? Uh, But the instinct to call it an op is the instinct to soothe your cognitive dissonance. It's to say, "Oh, this thing, this movement that I I support, that sometimes I even feel that I may be a part of, if I participate in protests or something, is doing something I don't agree with." Ah, shit. The the it's the authorities. They're doing this. No one who is really true of heart, like me, would yell at some per- random person. Uh, that's crazy. That must be the work of of the de- dastardly deep state. And absent any evidence, and all of this happens immediately when nobody has any context at all, let alone evidence, I think that comes more than anything, not from a, like a recognition of the role of intelligence in propaganda or reality, it comes from a desire to soothe cognitive dissonance. And soothing cognitive dissonance through the creation of narratives of conspiracy is literally how we got QAnon. And I don't think that's necessarily going to happen on the left, because, you know, the the incentives are different, the social structure of the people involved is different, or the social, like, context of the people involved is different. Uh, But what is not different uh, is that it is a soothing balm that leads you away from confronting reality. And if you're on the left, confronting reality is very, very important. Because you don't have the luxury of capital to be buff- to buffer your your failures of analysis and your failures of, of, of strategy, you are out, out there. We're all out here on our on our own. We don't we aren't we aren't able to uh, to be like QAnon might come true because eventually the reactionary forces in this country might just come to believe it to justify the actions they were going to do anyway. That's not because they organized. That's not because uh, their delusions were correct. It's because. That was the flow of history. And they're going with the flow. They're salmon. Or no, they're not salmon. They're the other ones. The left is salmon. You're swimming upstream. You don't have the benefit of being able to just soothe yourself with this notion that, oh, you know, we're in an incredibly collapsed timeline here. And everyone who is politically active really has to be thinking in terms of what they could do in the here and now to push things in a positive direction to go, oh, everything that's bad that happens is part of any left project is 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 the police, is an op. One... That's just you soothing yourself and making you fail and, and allowing you to ignore the real problems that this thing creates, which I'll talk about in a second. But secondly, uh, even if it's true, so what? Oh, it's an op. All right. So what can you prove it's an op? Or are you going to go bust the guy who did it and have him confess? No. It's just a way, what? When you tell others, someone else it's an op, you just want them to read it and then not worry anymore. So your strategy for defeating the deep state is just telling people there's a deep state. I mean, once again, not effective. Soothing, coping. And I understand why people want to cope. i do not blaming anybody for this because, my God, why wouldn't people want to fucking cope when there's so little on the horizon that looks like there's any hope? But but compensating for that by indulging in... in Personally, uh, personally, personally, soothing and pleasing and uh, exciting exercises at the expense of efficacy is actually counterproductive. It's a waste of time and resources that can't be wasted. There's no time. And when something like this pops up, you can say it's bullshit that everyone's talking about this. Yeah, does that change anything? Okay, it's bullshit. It's bullshit people are talking about this, correct. Are they still talking about it? Oh, no, they are. It's an op. Okay. It's an op. Now what? The same people who believed it was, the the exact people who thought it was an op at the beginning still think that no one else does because they don't have your epistemic window that makes it look like an op before anything else. Now what? The fact is, even if it wasn't out, there would be no way to isolate it because there's no movement, there's no organized movement that can either like, endorse or ratify the actions of any particular outcropping of this, this uh, leaderless, kind of passionate outbursting that we're seeing, which is totally predictable and understandable given the horrible conditions and be give, given things like monstrous, bl- horrifying police executions that everybody gets to watch. On television. But that desire to cleanse oneself of the feeling of guilt and the feeling of rage cannot overcome our greater uh, commitment and duty to stopping it. And seeing something like that and not making you making it use and not having it make you stop and say, "Okay, what are we doing here? Instead, to just have an an excuse, a complaint. And then to move on, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not wrong in some sort of ideal sense, but that's not the fucking point. The point, as someone once said, is not to describe the world, but to change it. And if your big piece of evidence that it's an op is, I don't think people would do that, people I believe in, no, it has to be like dastardly libs or police officers. People I agree with would never do that. You're telling me that in a country of 300 million adult infants who have been indulged their entire lives along, uh, the, uh, the notion that, that the sum total of human freedom is their personal happiness, whatever that means. Oh, here's what it means. We're going to tell you what happiness is. You're telling me that even that if people in that context find themselves horrified by a genuine uh, outrage, a genuine social wrong, that in the absence of the mechanisms of an organized movement that can take everyone's passions and organize them along effective tranches of behavior, absent that, that we're going to go to what feels good. And what could feel better than screaming in someone's fucking face and making them hold up their hand for you? That that isn't a power trip. Yeah, I, I just I find that a plausible motivation. I think that's something that people could do absent the government telling them to. Or absent it being a, uh, a total false flag. The people I encounter in this world, in this country, they're the kind of people who would do that. Oh, I get to scream in someone's face and be the good guy? Uh, and so you have that. And then there's the greater... And then there's the other problem that it's not like everybody is saying that this is a terrible thing. Some people are saying that this is a good, this is good, or that fuck them. It's, it's like, what's the big, you know, it's like, oh, crap, boo-hoo. Yeah, of course, it's nothing. Who cares in terms of like broad, but as a, as a strategy, like if these things are supposed to be examples of actions to create difference, there are people who see this and they think that it's a good thing to do. And I got, a, I, I got a tweet here from someone, and I know, yeah, blah blah, you shouldn't go on Twitter, but this is a person with not no followers, and somebody who seems to be somewhere in here. And I just, I'm going to read this because it seems to me to be exemplary of the mindset of someone who would see that and think it was a good idea. The thing about protesting that's not supposed to cause a crisis of leadership is that it's supposed to cause a crisis of leadership. If someone doesn't want to be screamed at by BLM protesters while eating, they should call their local polls and demand they rein in the fucking cops. Now, I would agree with that. The reason I quoted that is not because, like, look at all these people who think that, but because I think that's actually the thought process. I think that is the correct thought process. If you were to, like, split open the brains of the people doing this in good faith, I think you would find this is the basic idea, that if you get everybody on your side through either persuasion, and if that fails, through coercion of social pressure. Uh, In in medieval Germany, they used to call it cat music. Uh, If somebody in in in, like, a village or a hamlet was a real prick uh, because there was no real law enforcement people would gather in front of their house and they'd bang pots and pans and they wouldn't let them sleep and it would tell them to shape up and a lot of people actually see that as a model for restorative justice absent uh, the carceral state which i mean once again if you want to have if you're talking if you're assuming a feudal level of social relationship a feudal level of social connectedness and interwovenness maybe we can start talking but if you don't have that that's not going to be a good idea but but so then everybody does that. Now, of course, that's not the only response you can have from someone doing this. The, other, the next tweet from this person is, or they can go sign up on racist subreddit because now they want a race war. It's their choice. The protest forced them to make one. And I think that gets at another thing that's essential here, is that that kind of action is not designed to change things so much as it is designed to separate the good people from the bad people. By doing it, by banging it, yelling at somebody, by demanding they move their hand in public, by bullying someone. By the way, they're not hitting cops anymore, at least in D.C. And it's like, I get that. Why would you want to risk that? Why would you want to get your split ha- get your head split open without any hope it's going to lead to anything? Uh, I wouldn't want to fight with the cops either, with a la- any kind of lack of plan behind it. I could yell at somebody with no plan behind it, because what's that? Da- what's the downside for me? And I get to feel like a big, big, bu- big person. I get to feel like I'm bossing somebody around, which everybody wants. Everybody wants to be Karen. But Karen, people want to be caring not just that they can uh, uh, dominate others, but because it is a model for getting things done in a consumer context. Yelling at, the man, yelling at an employee till he brings a manager, then yelling at the manager is a way to get the discount because you have basically badgered the company into doing, doing it to make you go away. That's what they're talking about. They're saying yell at people, attack people, until they, till they do what you want to make them go away. And what that assumes always is that the people in charge are will always be there there will always be a separate class of political uh, and economic uh, elite and that your only way of changing their behavior the changing the conditions of your life is by getting them to change their actions even though things like having like our police state ex- uh, are not optional to capitalism as it currently exists these things are not just fun gigaws. this is the core functions of the state all the stuff that was superfluous has already gone, they sold it off. The stuff that's left is the real steel. It's the exoskeleton of the state. They're not going to give it up. No matter what if you complain too much, if it really becomes a problem, they will make you stop complaining. And this and so the only way to stop that horrible police state we have is to organize to defeat it, replace it, replace the political system, and replace the economic system. That's your only way around that. You're not going to get them to change something that is a crucial piece of the architecture of like, capitalism. A load-bearing structure. They're not going to kick it away because you said so, because you asked, because you dabbed on some people who were eating eggs benedict. But they don't even know that what they're talking about is Karenism because, they're, because that's the only thing they've ever known. Complaining. To the manager is all people know in this country because we've never had the disciplinary experiential behavior of having a social uh, a social element added to our personal pleasure seeking id through collective action through working through working together at something like i don't know a labor union we're coming together as individuals we're marching together in a, in a big group but nobody knows each other And in that, in that environment, uh, there's, going to be no, there's going to be no strategy. There's only going to be letting out your frustration, your anger, your, your sense of guilt if you're white. And a lot of the people yelling were white. Your sense of complicity, you want to yell it out. And then you can convince yourself, oh, if I yell enough, they're going to do what I want them to do. Well, I mean, if the thing is is, is optional, if it's if it's something up in the up in the cultural element of culture, like what TV shows are on, or you know, whether there's interracial couples in television ads, or you know, if there's a black Spider-Man, that's negotiable. The police are not negotiable, but nobody has ever had any effect on their lives on the life. Oh boy, Uh, uh, effective activism that wasn't just asking. It wasn't just demanding to make other people do something. Someone else, someone in charge is going to do it. But that's not going to work. We have to change it. Because at this point, the things we're pissed at are not optional. Unless you really care about stuff like, uh, you know, having LBGTQ uh, uh, Marvel characters. If you care about things like the viability of the planet uh, and the fact that like a democracy is just turning into... Even even the fucking, even the kabuki of democracy is being replaced by uh, just sheer authoritarian uh, exertion. I mean, we're on the verge of electing a president without, who didn't even win the popular vote twice in a row, who is going to bring upon himself unprecedented power, but any president would do that. And that's why fascism is such a bad thing to be banging on about right now, because if there's going to be camps in the near future for people, if we're going to get rounded up, Biden would do it too. It'll just be a different... Pe- Maybe it'll be a different group of people getting rounded up. Maybe it'll be a more racially inclusive group of people rather than just minorities that get r- rounded up. But it will be a rounding up and it will have a neoliberal uh, smiley face gloss on it, but it will be the same thing. Because it will be necessitated by the conditions, by the crisis. I'm not saying that will happen, but I'm saying it's not like Trump's going to snap his fingers and make it happen from a position of uh, carrying out a... Uh, a a fascist coup. It's going to be a to a crisis that cannot be otherwise contained, and that crisis would exist under Biden. There's going to be some some rain. I think there's some fat boys coming. Some fat fat rain boys coming. Uh. But yeah, I mean. At the end of the day, nobody wants to confront the fact that a lot of, the, a lot of what we think of as, as an uprising is really just people getting their jollies in one way or another, including the people online cheering them on, or talking about them, or even us talking about them, me talking about them, all just getting a little bit of pleasure rather than doing effective action. And that, who wants to confront that reality? That sucks. And, it's, and it is terrible. But I do think that until you confront it, you can't really break the cycle. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. I might not make it an hour out here, guys. We'll see. I might have to start running soon. But the reality is, is that you, you can argue all you want about whether it's good to burn a building, you can't press a bit- button and stop them from doing it, or press a button and make people do it. You can't vote on it, you can't make it happen or not happen. You can't make or not make a group of people yell at some uh, brunchers in D.C. It's everyone just operating out of, out of... I hate to lean on a clutch, lean on a verbal crutch, but it's very uh, crucial in this case, a libidinal political instinct, a desire to, what I mean by that more than anything is a individualized, id-based political instinct that is not to achieve a better world, but is to gain the pleasures associated with feeling that you are on the right side of history. And the thing about that is that's got to motivate everybody to an extent, but it has to connect also to a greater project, which will the exercising of which will bleed your need for the libidinal because you're getting results. Or even if you're not getting results, you're feeling comradeship. You're feeling effective in a narrow sense, in a way that you never will by going out and hollering at people. But that means that that drive is only going to be, become more more fixating because over time you need to uh, compensate more and more for the lack of effectiveness. Lacan's good. Wakanda's correct on a lot of stuff. Come on. Especially since the lot of the central shit is just Buddhism. It's just Buddhism with continental gloss. It's Buddhism with a baguette up its ass. Okay, holy mackerel! Woo! Uh, I got the I got the uh, I got the black cherry. Mm. All right, guys, maybe we can get in and still record, but I gotta get out of here. It is gonna come down. Uh. haven't been inside for a while I've been not since my neighbor scared me back in by uh, telling me to stop hooting and hollering out there I'm back to hooting and hollering ah all right how's everybody doing we're back in the house we're back in the New York groove indoors Bad as I want to be. Uh. Someone wants to know what authoritarian uh, neoliberalism is going to look like. And I would say uh, China is a good example. Uh, Brazil. Uh letting all the letting boat people drown in the mediterranean I mean it's all happening you know uh, the, the apocalypse already has happened it's just not evenly distributed uh. Singapore is a very good example, yes. But mostly it's going to be about paring around the edges. It's, about, it's going to be about creating new borders and liminal spaces that can be negotiated violently. Uh, because for the, you know, for the, for the length of American history, America was able to export its most like dysfunctional social pathologies onto its border regions. And it was always pushing out that way and able to push them out that way and and that's why they never had to confront them. That's why we never had a real like socialist movement in this country, one of the big reasons. But now that we've hit all borders, now that we've hit the edge of space, we are now having to reinscribe borders to find a new liminal space for maximal violence where people where, where citizens are allowed to carry out the maximum amount of violence, uh, and the people subject to their violence are not part of the conceived of group of right bearing citizens. It's a gambit stuff. You know what I'm talking about. The homo sauceur And. We have those at the border now, and those borders will just be increased. They will become other places. They will probably become distributed within the United States, around cities probably, specific areas of, of like where, where, where the cataclysm is hitting most direly. Places attacked by global warming, uh, flooding, like consistent wildfires, uh, desertification, uh, urban areas that are like where, where they're... We're not where the there's the cycle of like police violence and response is is made uh permanent like right now it's sort of it's uh it waxes away it's like we had it's now getting compressed like the the time from like think of the time it took for, to get from uh you know uh so that like you got mike brown to uh to uh Baltimore and now we've got uh from George Floyd three months later, like the violence is gonna go up, which means the cycle is gonna speed up, which means the intervals are gonna get shorter and eventually it just becomes a permanent condition. And that's a new border, that's a new internal border that where you get to exercise uh, maximal violence. And the, the reason that this isn't fascism is because there is still that social continuum within that area, with uh, with uh, outs- uh, I'm sorry, the places beyond those borders, that's still the same atomized social slurry of consumers basically being free to consume that we have now. It will be functionally identical. There will not be marching jackboots in the streets. There's not going to be a new flag with like a weird symbol, a weird rune on it. You know, there's not going to be jackboots. There's not going to be... Th- theater. There's not going to be this frission of, of apocalypse, of, of revelation of, re, of the truth, of the whole condition. And for the leftists, the validation of their worldview. I have always said that America was fascist, and now I have been proven correct. That moment, which is, I think, undergirding a lot of the fantasy projection of American fascism, that won't happen. I highly, highly doubt it. What you will have is, you will have the border regions within and at the edge, where violence is maximally applied, and then you will have America, where we're doing TikToks, or whatever progress goes after TikTok, and we're arguing over the problematic content of uh, Aquaman versus uh, Bernie Getz. No, Gilead, what are you talking about? Oh my God! No! It's just like this! Only more people are dying and there are fewer people uh, who are still living our absurdly inflated consumer standard of living at the very end of the global supply chain. Do you understand the distinction? I think that the the I, I guess the what I what I find most visible about the fascist framing is that it seems to me to be at a certain level, a, a, a fantasy, something that deeply at a level. I mean, not in terms of their morals. You know, they are they are horrified by fascism and want to defeat it. And in fact, the fantasy of fascism is what gives their actions romance and and uh, and power to them, and and it give, allows them to expend orgone along the axis of politics it's it's the horribleness of that possibility and then if you talk about it a lot and say it's coming its occurrence is a validation and i feel like that that means that you're not looking at reality that means that you are abstracting and i just have to like as a general rule as a rubric i could look at somebody who's fixated on fascism and say this person is they're not, their eye isn't on the ball And so they're going to be more likely... And haven't you noticed, by the way, that people the most fixated on fascism and calling what we're in fascism are also the most committed to things like theatrical, demonstrative, non-organized political action to replace real either electoral or labor activism and organization. Like spectacular demonstrations of anti-fascist sentiment. And that's because... They think we're at a level of social development that we are not. We need to organize way more people. Getting people needs to be the only question. Sorting people has to come later. These people want to sort. Remember that tweet I wrote you about uh, the tweet that said, "Hey, they'll either tell, they'll either call up the mayor and tell him to get rid of racism, which wow, it's it's so nice that we they could do that, uh, or they'll go and become a Stormfront editor and uh, get a gun and become a fucking." Uh, militia member. That's not good. You don't want that to happen. To somebody who's like a not engaged, you want to minimize that. But no. If your goal is sorting people into good and bad, then you're, you want that to happen. I'm saying we cannot be sorting. We need to be organizing everybody who has any genuine access of alienation that is aware of capitalism, that aware, is aware of their their misery being connected to the system of the economy, that the, they have not been captured by fantasies of like racism being the cause of all evil, or uh, uh, Q people thinking that it's Hollywood Hollywood pedophiles or Jews or whatever right wing fantasy you need to to square the reality of living under somebody else's design in a free country. If you identify, if you are under, if you're aware at all that there is a class component to your immiseration then you have to be engaged with and of course that's going to make people uncomfortable but that discomfort gets edged out through actual behavior together but it will never get etched out in the phantom realm of online where all disagreement has now been defined as or can be defined as abuse How many people think being disagreed with is abusing someone? Now, if you really thought that in your day-to-day behavior, you wouldn't be able to function. You don't really think that. Online, your fantasy life can sustain that belief, and you can use it to batter down everyone you're interacting with to do what you want them to do. Now, if you were acting politically in the real world, over time, Your ability to do that would be blunted against everyone else's desire to get something done. And you would have to accommodate it. Also, I must say, there are also people who are genuinely like very racist and committed to racism. Or deeply misogynistic and hostile to women. uh, Or wildly, wildly reactionary about some group of people. and, And that they can't get rid of that. Well they can maintain that all, all they want online as they duel with the SJWs, and in fact, the more they believe those things, the more they trigger people they hate so they can believe in them more. If they really wanted to alleviate their misery and they can understood it as a result as that class action was the only thing that would do it, they wouldn't fucking bring that shit up. And even if they still thought it, it wouldn't matter because they would have to accommodate to organizing into the group, and that would mean that either it would go or they would alienate everybody else and they'd get kicked out. They would have to choose between actually trying to fix things and holding on to this bullshit, just like people would have to choose between actually trying to fix things and holding on to the all disagreement is abuse, all experiences should be totally frictionless, no one should ever have any conflict at all, and that I'm going to use that belief to badger everyone else into basically never disagreeing with me. None of those, neither of those are sustainable beliefs in a genuinely effective left wing organization. At this point, everyone now like people like to say, oh, look at the UAW, look at the look at uh, all the racists and the old crafts unions. History has moved forward, I'm afraid. And a lot of those problems that shattered the labor movement in the sixties, a lot of them, not all of them, for the love of God, not all of them, but of course not all of them, have been resolved. We are dealing with a fundamentally less instinctively racist population than we'd had to deal with in the sixties. And that means that The people who even are racist can be dealt with as long as they think they can make their lives better through class collaboration. So all of this desire to to separate the sheep from the goats and the fascists from the anti-fascists, all of it does is to serve to guarantee that the fewest people are going to make the step from online to the real world. The fewest people are going to want to talk to other people in the real world about politics and try to figure out how to fix things. And the more of them are going to sink all of their fucking jism, all of their nut, all of their orgone, all of their life essence into battling on the etheric plane. Because they get to hold on to their Bullshit. They get to hold on to their greasy little center of of perverted pleasure. Whether it's a racial fixation, sexual inadequacy brought on by being a gross and unfuckable incel. Or the trauma associated with with, being a minority that that manifests itself in such a way that you cannot countenance you are so distrustful of non-whites or women, or men if you're a woman, that you cannot ever trust their motives in any situation and have to constantly prove to yourself that they're on your side because you fundamentally do not trust them. And I'm not saying that you don't have a good reason not to trust men if you're a woman or uh, white people if you're black, but I am saying that if you cannot let go of that, make a, say it with me, folks, leap of faith sufficient to meet someone that way, a man or a, 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 black, a white person halfway, then you will leave. And that's fine. That's the kind of person who should not be part of an organization. But guess what? The bet of Marxism, the bet of socialism, the bet of the human race is that the majority of people, if they properly understand that moment and that choice, will choose to cooperate and will choose to put the greater good above their own. But they have to see evidence that there's a reason to do it or else it all comes back to the self and the disgusting little jack-off session in your pants. Oh dear, I'm afraid I went off again. Oh boy. I afraid, I'm afraid that I have gone down again. I have gone, I have gone off, sirs and madams that you may be watching. But that's fine. That's fine. I am uh, sipping, not the tea, but the seltzer. I hope the uh, thing isn't shaking too much, but I don't really have anywhere to put my phone. I, I have the thing out there. I, I'm not even sure if it's raining. It just felt like it was going to. Kierkegaard, baby. Give me some Kierkegaard. He's in the stew. When I think of who's in the gumbo... Who's in my mental gumbo? He's in there. Spinoza. Kierkegaard for sure. Wittgenstein, I think. Nietzsche, definitely. And of course, Plato, because forms are crucial. Someone wants me to talk about the Batavian Republic... Uh, there are other listeners to the Age of Napoleon podcast out there, because today I, in fact, also just listened to his episode about the end of the, uh, the peace that followed the War of the Second Coalition. Batavian Republic just makes me think of, uh, it just makes me think of uh, pretzels. I don't know why, but I just think of a pretzel, big hot, a hot pretzel with mustard when I hear Batavian. It's, it's deeply, it's Pavlovian. I don't know where it came from. And now I really want a big, we- oh God, I want a big, oh, big soft pretzel with mustard. Mm. Not hot nacho sauce. Mustard for sure. Oh, big Bavaria. And I know, it's, I know it's the Batavian Republic, not the Bavarian Republic, but maybe it's, they're close enough that they make me think of it. God damn, you guys just make me want a pretzel. But I don't really know much about Switzerland. I, it's very interesting. I mean, when you consider how, how sui generis it is in Europe, to this day, in terms of a country, like it broke off from the Holy Roman Emperor very early. And then I guess, you know, because of its defensible... Physical position was able to establish independence from all of the reigning houses, uh, you know, of, of the Middle Ages and the early modern era, and, uh, and institute what, uh, what Harry Lyme and the third man called the 500 Years of Democracy and Peace. What did it bring us? The cuckoo clock. And that's the funny thing about Switzerland. They cut themselves off, for, they like basically signed off and said, We're done with this. And you didn't really ever hear from them again. They just sat there collecting money. They made the smart move. It's like Mussolini was half right when he said blood alone moves the wheel of history. It's like well, blood first, but then gold. And the Swiss knew why fight these wars when you can make money. They were the first really effective mercenaries in the in the medieval era. Were the Swiss uh, the Swiss pikemen? Your land connects. And now they get to just sit there in their mountain castle in the Hall of the Mountain King counting their ducats. It's, uh, it's, it's sinister. Oh, fuck. That was the Helvetica Republic. You're right. Batavian Republic were the Dutch. Yeah, uh, the Dutch one. I like that they ate a guy... Dutch Rebels one time ate a dude. They ate a governor they were mad at. That's amazing. God damn it, I knew Lansknecht for German. I thought they were supposed to. They ate a dude uh, when... Uh, I like the fact that they've got a 90 years war, which people don't know, normally know about. Or 80 years war, rather. The 80, they got an 80 years war. But yeah, all those sister republics were failures, as as I think Everett does a good job of talking about on the episode today, because they were not organic. You know, they did not they did not adhere to the social soil because they were imposed from without. Contradictions have to be worked from within, worked out from within a social order, which is why honestly a lot of the Soviet fantasies of like, of of uh, revolutionary war, like the guys like Bukharin who wanted to continue the war. Uh, under the flag of the you know of class revolution, stuff imposed from without. Even if it's like, even if you are representing like the correct force of history or the progressive side of history, you still have to contend with local conditions. And that's why the idea that you can like invade and impose betterness. I mean, it never worked. It didn't work for the French. Uh, and it, it didn't work really for any of the, uh, any of the Marxist or you know, would, uh, so-called Marxist states of the 20th century. It, it's sort of a macro version of how you can't scream at someone's face to raise their fist and expect that to work. Like, who are you? You're just some asshole. Like, they don't... They, they haven't bought your... They haven't gotten your assumptions. They aren't sharing a lot of your assumptions to, so that they're gonna, there's going to be a lot of cultural and, and uh, symbolic screens between your understanding of the reality and theirs. All you can do is stoke the fires for, for internal resolution of, re, of, uh, of contradiction, which is why the Trotskyists are wrong as shit. They want world revolution so much... That they think we can make it happen because it has to happen soon if we're going to get world socialism or any kind of socialism. Like we're going to have to get, they believe we're going to, have, the real thing of Trotskyism is, is they believe you can't get rid of capitalism with, until you have a world system. And they might actually have a point with that. I don't know. I haven't thought about it that much, honestly. But like the reasoning is when you look at what happened with the Soviet Union, if you're in a world market system, you will suborn yourself to it. That's why they became deformed, Marx, uh, deformed workers' states, like they called them, and they talked about the rise of the bureaucratic class that had to manage the state capitalism. That's because they were part of this global system, uh, and they were in competition. And that need for competition made them capitalists. And, and you know, that tr- that's, I think that's an accurate description of like the structure of the uh, uh, Soviet economy, but what do you do about it is the question. And, and, and I don't think that Trotskyism resolves that question. Trotskyism Offloads the question by saying, "Well, you export it. you revolt everybody else, and then you can have a system where that state capitalism turns into real communism. It has to emerge independent, it has to emerge from the ground up everywhere. And that doesn't mean we can't cooperate. We have to Coop, like things like solidarity, strikes and shit, like that historically has been the kind of thing we're talking about. I mean, if in World War one... When all the countries had declared war on each other, if class consciousness had been developed enough in the advanced countries for all of their work, all of their labor class, all of their socialist parties and all of their labor unions to just declare general strikes, that would have literally created world revolution right there, or could have, or would have been the start of, I think, an unstoppable tide, uh, or at least a highly highly uh, effective. Uh, the best chance we could have had basically and there's an argument to be made that world war one was basically a false flag to get the working classes of europe to kill each other instead of unite but the thing is once you're in that state sector and that's another country's flag coming over the uh the the wall with guns and uh and, and a different vocabulary then conflict will arise they will not accept it uh Robespierre, who warned against the, the the republic declaring war, and that's one of those things you can use if you want to defend Robespierre, is that the conditions that led to the the Great Terror were exacerbated wildly by the early years of the war with the first with the, the Austrians, uh, and how badly it went, and how terrified everybody was that the fucking king was going to c- come and, uh, uh, or that uh, the king was going to come back to power and everybody killed. But that war was. Uh, that war was opposed by the Jacobins. That war was opposed by the mountain. Because Robespierre said, the only thing people hate than mission- more than missionaries are armed missionaries. And what happened was, is that that frenzied war condition is what led to people fleeing to the, you know, the, the safety of the Jacobins to, like, carry them through the conflict. And all the sister republics that were left in the wake of uh, French revolutionary success were never able to take root, even with national organic political movements. Think about the, uh, the, the Italian peasantry who rose up against the French because the local priests told them to. Your, your, your peasantry has to get alienated against the priests themselves. You cannot alienate a peasantry from their own priesthood from outside because why the hell would they listen to you over their fucking priest? Because, I mean, maybe maybe the crowned heads of Europe looked around and said, oh, in a few years, these guys at any, da- at any moment, forget having to stop a war, at any moment can just put down their tools and we're done. What what if we fight each other? And these guys all writing letters to each other because they were all literally related? Kaiser Wilhelm writing during the war to Nicholas and calling him Dar- uh, Dearest Nicky? He was fucking, he was, he was... I believe H- Wilhelm was also uh, Queen Victoria's grandson, and King Ed- King uh, King George V looked exactly like Nicholas II, exactly. Uh, you know, you look think of it, and the thing is, is that I don't think that that's the thing that they thought to do. They weren't like, "Hey, let's do a big false flag war to kill off the working class." I think that one of the drivers of the military mobilization around late imperialism was the effective agitation of the working class. It drove, it exacerbated the need, the the perceived need for militaristic uh, uh, and imperial advancement among the leadership of the of the countries, and also militated against. de-escalation because from the perspective of a country dealing with a rising and more effective working class the idea of conscripting millions of them into the military is a contributing variable towards making the decision to go to war. Well I hope, I hope I made sense today. I kind of went off there. Time stopped moving. Cuba's more based than Vietnam because base, Vietnam is basically China Jr. that they let in Western capital. They've managed it relatively well. I mean, their COVID response shows that they have not sacrificed social cohesion uh, and like social welfare completely which I think wouldn't have happened if they hadn't won the war. Like, if you're Vietnamese, I think, if you're, if, you're, if you're a guy who fought in that war, I think you can look back at all that sacrifice. And I don't think you can look at the McDonald's across the street and go, you know what, it was all for nothing. Because if the South had won, certainly if they had been able to, you know, take over the whole country, or a certain, but if they had been able to, like, dominate lower, the lower half of that peninsula, they would have become a Bangladeshi like a a place of uh, hyper-exploitation of labor. Whereas they have capitalism now, but it's one that still has a degree of control. Uh, But at the same time, you look at that compared to Cuba, holding out against the world market for fucking 70 years, surviving the fall of the Soviet Union, and then surviving the death of Castro, which nobody really thought was going to happen. It's astounding. It really does bring a tear to the eye. I don't want to choose. Solidarity with both of them. I do wonder if like the people who are really pro-China, like the campus Deng people, if they know how little the Vietnamese communists like China, or the Maoists in India for that, exa- for that matter, Yeah, striking is illegal in Vietnam. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, the person you really have to ask if it was worth Vietnam was us. For us, it was like not worth it for any kind of perspective because we got in there anyway on terms that even if they weren't ideal, were not ideal were better than nothing and have been wildly helpful to uh, facilitating global capital flows, which of course is all of this matters. The flow. If there's one word, when you think about the economy, all this shit, because think of the word flow. They are not discrete economies in this world. It is one holistic system of systems, and it is described, its actions are described as a flow, in my mind. It is a circulation, it is a circular system. And they're in the flow. I think that they are at a better position as a country than they would have been uh, if they hadn't fought and hadn't kicked us out. Uh, but certainly, when you consider what the stakes were for America, and how psychically damaging that war was for us, and how it deformed our politics for the rest of its existence. It's kind of breathtaking. But of course, an example had to be made, like it was in Indonesia, like it was in Iran, like it was in Guatemala, like it was in Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Greece, Italy, France... Uh Ireland, if you count all the f- the aid to the fucking uh the SAS against the anti-imperial movements. It's uh it was a global war. Like you could say you could call it the Third World War. Okay. I think they said that on QAnon. And I or true anon, sorry. Uh, I think I think Mike Judge said that on TrueAnon that it's that the third world war already happened and it was the battle between capitalism and the whole world like not just the soviet union but uh, like arrayed differently like all of the world uh and like you could consider the soviets and like the chinese as big factions within a broader uncoordinated coalition against one massive enemy which is global capitalism And that the battlefields were not in Russia or the United States, but in Korea, Vietnam, uh, uh, the DRC, South Africa, uh, uh, Namibia, Mozambique, Algeria, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, uh, all all the, all of the, uh, Europe itself through the Gladio program, Algeria, uh, the entire, the entire Western hemisphere, the entire American sphere of influence. And I'm not talking about, and in all those cases I'm talking about real violence, actual battlefields, deaths in the millions, and the end of which has left a rampant and un, and uh, unchallenged global capitalism with a global capital flow. And so I would say that from the point, point of view of like American policymakers and American American stakeholders, specifically American political stakeholders, Vietnam was a mistake, even if it did prevent an example from forging. But I think as stepped away as like one, one chess move in a global chess game uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the interest of the creation of those flow networks, like if you don't have Vietnam, what, like it's a reverse domino theory. If you don't go in in Vietnam, where else don't you go in? And what battles maybe do you lose? And then how much does that change the uh, conditions? sites, uh, bad timing. You gotta wait, man. You gotta wait for that printing press. What are you doing? All right, guys. Maybe one more question, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up. I'm a little, I'm a little smoked. Oh man, Twilight Struggle. Okay, I will leave on this. Thank you for reminding me of that. I tried to play Twilight Struggle once, and it seems to me to be a very, very complicated game. But that's exactly the kind of game that Chris could walk me through. So I would love to do Twilight Struggle. That's a great idea. We'll do that. And I hope, I hope the stream is going to start in September. Fingers crossed. Uh, I think we're going to do it. And like I said, there'll still be an hour. Whenever we do it, there'll be an hour of me doing this. That's not going anywhere. Maybe Chris will help with fielding the questions so I'm not staring into the screen so much, but I will basically be doing this. Then we'll do games and other stuff. But this is not going anywhere. It's being added to. Benghazi ain't going away. All right, guys. Good night.